Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 8 says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought the oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, what are you, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let's pray. Father, now as your word is opened, we ask that your voice would be heard, that you would speak clearly, Father, into our midst this morning. Incredible God, that you have chosen a human instrument like myself to bring forward your word. And so I ask, Lord, that you would purify my lips and my hands as I would dare to speak for you, Lord, and to give your word to your people, Lord. May they not faint in the day of adversity, Lord. May they not grow weary in doing good. So this morning we ask, God, that you would feed us, that you would feed us and strengthen us by your word. For Christ said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. So, Father, we come to your table this morning eagerly as beggars, needing your word to sustain us. So I ask that you would help us, Lord. Help me this morning. Uh, Lord, cast down any word that is not in accordance with your holy book, your scriptures, your revealed will to us. We pray this together, asking it with anticipation together. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody or in a very important um, meeting of sorts and you have something very important to share and you get it all out, you explain yourself as clearly as you possibly know how, you have carefully chosen your words, you have avoided using triggering words or confusing words and you have put yourself forward and thought, there, now I'm sure I'll be understood. And when you listen back to the person's recollection of that meeting or their response to it, you realize they have completely missed the point. And I mean utterly missed the point, like you are on two different planets. And it's shocking when such clear communication is offered that people could possibly can be confused by what you meant. Um, I'm going to guess... That that's probably happened to you. I think that's actually very common. There's nothing very special about you if that's happened to you. And if it hasn't, you are some wizard at communication. And I would love to learn from you. 
but I think because that's so common, it begs a more important question. And that is, what do you do after? What do you do when that happens? Because I think it happens to the best of us. Do you have the heart or the desire to actually pursue that again and come to unity or come to one accord on that information? I think many of us here, this is where we might be a bit more divided, where we put our heart out or we do something and it's misunderstood. Many of us are just drained by that experience, right? It's just, it's deflating. It's like, I can't believe this is going the way it is. We would actually want to overcome that misinterpretation. We would want to overcome that miscommunication and try again and work at it. And we see that's what happens with Paul here. We live sort of, if, if you're into philosophy or culture watching, you may understand this. And if you don't, hopefully this, you can see this in our culture. Right now, we live in a late postmodern culture. Late postmodern. That just sounds like a lot of jargon, doesn't it? Well, there was what they had what they had called the modern era, which was scientifically based. It was propositionally based. It was, this is concrete truth. It was the age of scientific explosion, um, microscopic accuracy, the discovery of the you know, neutrons and protons and how things are put together. And there's concrete, knowable truth in the world. That's modernist thinking. And I suspect most of you appreciate that your doctor is a modernist that they would actually interpret what is actually wrong with you and find an actual solution that is proven out by science. Well, friends, we live in a culturally postmodern culture, which means that now we have shifted from we're not really sure what the truth is. We're not really sure what the reality of the world is. We can't possibly really know we have shifted to the point now where if there are some holdouts who would still say, no, there is knowable truth. You can know the truth. You can be certain about things. That is now seen in many pockets of our culture as hate speech, as, as out of line, as intolerant. It has gone from, well, we're not really sure what the truth is, to if you think that there is truth, you're archaic, you're a caveman. All right, you are totally out of line with where culture is going. And so as Christians, I want to put forward to you that this is where we are almost singularly most countercultural. This is going to make us different from the culture in probably one of the most starkest ways, that and our sexual ethic, but we're not talking about that this morning. Those are the two ways that Christians are going to stand out as most countercultural. Our knowledge of the truth and our assertion of the truth and our sexual ethic. Because the reality is we believe that God has given us the truth. And that we can't, knowing that truth, we can't pretend like we don't know. We, it's false humility. And in fact, it's proud. It's proud in the end to say, well, we're not really sure. Because God would say, yes, you are. Yes, you're sure because I have made my words certain to you. And so in today's culture, I think we don't have an option but to tell the truth and to overcome misinterpretation, and to overcome false belief, and to truly share the gospel in a way that is knowable and that is certain. And so that's my introduction to this text and what's going on here. You're going to see three elements to this text. You're going to see the event, you're going to see the people, and you're going to see the truth. The event, the people, and the truth. Now, just to let you know where we're at, Paul and Barnabas are in the middle of their first missionary journey in the book of Acts. 
Paul took three major missionary journeys, and this is the middle of his first one, and he's got co-workers with him. He's got this guy named Barnabas, and he and Barnabas got really close at the beginning because when Paul was saved, he was known to be an enemy of the church, and the church was actually quite afraid of him. But then he met Jesus, and he was to join the church. But when he came near to the church, the church was like, this guy's a terrorist. We just really aren't sure about him. But Barnabas had some special faith, and Barnabas said, no, 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 guys. I believe Paul. I believe his testimony. And Paul brought, sorry, Barnabas brought, brought Paul into the church and kind of welcomed him in. And so they formed a close bond at the beginning, and they began this missionary journey together. They were sent out, filled with the Holy Spirit, and sent out with a message to convert the nations, to disciple the nations in Christ. And so we're in the middle of that missionary journey. Paul is traveling from city to city. He's getting further and further away from Jerusalem. And with that geographic shift, there is beginning to be seen in Acts a religious shift. They are starting to get outside of the culture that is permeated by Jewish religion. And now there's a a bit of a mix. There are still synagogues around. But now we are seeing pagan temples, pagan worship. We're seeing what was going on in the rest of the world. And rather than slowing the Christian down and saying, well, this is not like Judaism. We're familiar with Judaism. These people know who God is. So we're going to stop here. The commission of Jesus was, you're going to go be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So don't stop where Judaism has been preached, keep going all the way. And that's why the missionary movement today seeks to reach unreached people, people who have never heard the gospel or do not have the Bible. There are still people permeating cultures today with pagan religious practices, converting them to Christ, sharing the truth with them. And so that's what's going on here in the book of Acts. And so we're going to see this event. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, Okay, and, and the, he had just fled from Iconium because he had heard of a plot that they were going to kill him with stones. So they got out of there so that they could continue preaching. And Paul has been doing miraculous wonders. It says it up in verse 14 that in, um, in chapter 14, verse 3, it says that they spoke boldly for the Lord who bore signs to the word, granting signs and wonders be done by their hands. And then down in verse 8, we also see that there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. And he listened intently at Paul's speaking. He's listening to the preaching. And and the writer of, of the book of Acts, whose name is Luke, he was a doctor. And doctors always pick up on this kind of thing, right? The man was sitting. He wasn't sitting because he was tired. He was sitting because his feet didn't work. He couldn't stand up and listen to the preaching. Now, probably sitting meant that he couldn't get as good access to the preaching, didn't have a good line of sight or whatever it was. But Paul is looking through the crowd and he's seeing this guy whose feet don't work. Now, again, the, the doctor is saying, now, this is not just an injury. He didn't just sprain it in men's league soccer last night. It says that his feet didn't work from birth. There's a distinctively medical assessment of this man's injury. It is not circumstantial. It is it is either genetic um, or it is some form of um, early injury that from the time of birth, he could not walk. He had actually never walked. And so Paul is administering and he is, he is activating these miracles that God is granting. Okay, Paul is not in and of himself, does not have the power to heal. God is granting these signs and he had done it before up in Iconium and he's doing it here now. He sees the man 
and he decides to heal the man. Now, it's because he looks at him and he sees his faith. And he says, this man has faith to be healed. In other words, this man who is listening to the preaching is understanding that the preaching is about the creator. The preacher is speaking about somebody who can help somebody like me. The reason why Christianity exploded so dramatically in, in that world was because there was such a dramatic divide between the rich and the poor, the well-to-do and the disabled. Disabled babies were literally left off in aqueducts in Rome. They were abandoned. Uh, there was zero care for those who were injured. There was no welfare system, as Blair was reminding us this morning, how fortunate we are to live in a, in a social safety net. Uh, but in these times, there was no help for people who were disabled. And so when a religion came along that preached that there was equal access for all to this God, it was attractive to women it was attractive to the disabled. It was attractive to the poor because it created a family that would take care of each other despite socioeconomic differences or statuses or physical abilities. And so it all, we see this all through the Gospels. We see it in the book of Acts. There is, and Jesus even said, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the tip of a needle because rich people think they don't need anything from God whereas the poor recognize they have nothing. And so Paul is granting, the, or God is granting these gifts. He's healing this man. And, and, and I want to show you that the, that the healing is concretely linked with the advance of God's work and with, coupled with the faith of an individual. Uh, there's not indiscriminatory um, mass healings here. This is linked with the faith that an individual has in God. And I want to also point out that the the book of Acts is constantly reminding us that these gifts are to prove that the preacher is from God. These are attesting signs. They are not signs to uh, drum up a crowd. They are not signs to impress people. They are signs to prove that the living God is the one who is being spoken of. And this man recognizes it. Romans chapter 8 gives us this poignant verse that I think we need to recognize the greater context of the, these types of sufferings and possibly to help us to endure what we're going through. Now, this man, I noticed most of us were walking this morning when we came in. Um, recognize how fortunate you are for that. Romans uh, chapter 8 says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the, in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves. And so this reminds us that the gospel is going out at all times into a context where creation has been subjected to futility. Creation is suffering under the pains of childbirth, waiting for freedom. When a child is born disabled or maimed, um, when tragedy strikes the earth, when natural occurrences take the lives of what we consider innocent people, when things break down relationally, when we suffer medical trauma, they, we exist in a world, our bodies are still living in this world that is subjected to futility, groaning and eagerly awaiting redemption. And so the gospel is always meeting up with this world and preaching a God who is one day going to liberate all creation. Did you ever think of Christianity as being sort of 
We live on the earth, and when God saves you, he snatches you up out of the way, and then the earth just he blows the earth into smithereens. The Bible doesn't actually teach that. The Bible teaches that the creation is awaiting freedom. The creation is waiting liberation and redemption in the same way that we are. We're all in this together, waiting for God to remake all things and to renew all things. And yet every time a miracle like this happens, it sets off, it sparks off a worldview clash in the same way that it did in Jesus' ministry, right? Every time Jesus did something good, he attracted a lot of negative attention. Isn't that ironic? And in the same way, the apostles, when they administer these miraculous gifts, it sets off a worldview clash. The difference between those who know the living God and those who don't. And so he, and one other point I want to make, and I'm not going to make a, a big thing about modern day healing. I, I am, I'm not a full cessationist. I don't put a cap on what God may or may not do. But I want you to recognize something. When you see things on TV about so-called miracle healings, you usually see a person who is standing who then falls down. In here we see a healing usually goes from down to up. Right? The healing sign is usually physiologically from some position of vulnerability and lowliness to uprightness. And so I, I would just challenge you to compare uh, the modern day um, manifestations of these so-called gifts with the scripture and does it line up? And again, I'm not saying yay or nay to everything or nothing. I'm just saying compare everything with scripture. When a healing takes place, a person goes from injured to not injured. They are not usually falling down as a result of a healing, which we often see in the modern versions of these gifts. And so just test everything with Scripture. That's enough about the event. Let's move on to the people. These are Lyconians. These are people who have pagan religious beliefs. These are not people who grew up in the synagogue, grew up with the Old Testament Scriptures, grew up with Moses, Joshua, all the stories of the Old Testament. <clears throat> There are some Jews in this area, but the predominant culture is now not Jewish. In other words, they don't have a pedigree or a history of the one true God. They have a different story. They have a different version of religious devotion. And we see it come out right away. As soon as they saw what Paul had done, they saw the miracle. They saw the event with their own eyes. Hard to deny what your eyes see. And it says that he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw it, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, and again, this is Luke making a point that culturally this is getting more and more separated from Jewish culture. He mentions the language that they begin speaking in. It's not Aramaic or Hebrew, which was more common in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. This is, we're getting out into an unreached culture, into a pagan culture, speaking Lyconian. And they lift up their voices and they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. This is their interpretation of the miracle. So they see the miracle, same way Paul did, same way you and I would have seen. The man springs up. We would have said, well, God healed that man. These folks who don't know who God is, they say the gods have come down among us and they're not talking about Jesus Christ or God the Father. They are talking about Zeus and Hermes. Those are the gods that they think came down. And they're convinced of this. They say, well, this is amazing. Our gods have come down and visited us. They saw the same event and they came up with an entirely different interpretation. They, they utterly missed the point of what Paul was doing. And they went so far and they went and they got the, the priest of Zeus. 
And from the temple, which was at the city gate, so it shows you that this city was permeated with false religious beliefs. It was at the gate of the city. So the city was permeated and controlled by this false religion. And they bring him. They're like, let's sacrifice bulls to these men because the gods are among us. Let's worship them. And the, the, the apostles are so, they're so busted up about this. They tear their, they literally tear their clothes to get their attention. This is so wrong. You are so wrong, you guys. Don't do this. Don't worship us. And I want to point something out. That when people criticize the Bible as being, you, you took the figure Christ and you mythologized him. You made him into a God when he never claimed to be a God. Go through the Gospels and find every instance where he is declared to be God or he is worshipped. He never rebukes anybody. He doesn't rebuke anybody for worshipping him. Why? Because he knows that he is God. The apostles, when they begin to be worshipped, they're like, whoop, like record scratch. No, this is off. This is wrong. This is not what we meant. This is not our power. The principle that we can take from this is that two people can see the same event and they can conjure radically different interpretations of those facts. Their conclusion was that Zeus and Hermes came down. And, and you can see it, it. They prove it to themselves. Well, that, why? Because they know that Hermes, Hermes is the messenger god. He's the one who does all the talking on behalf of the other gods. So that must be Paul because he talks a lot. So you can see how in their interpretation, it's self-fulfilling. Well, Paul must be Hermes because he's the one talking. You see how their, their worldview is self-fulfilling. They can take the facts and they can fill it in any way that they want to fulfill their worldview. This is why again and again, I, I bring this up, that works are not sufficient to preach the gospel. Because good works will always conjure different interpretations of what they meant. We must always speak the truth along with our good works. Our good works are really good at getting people's attention, aren't they? Right? It, people's attention sprang on Paul when he did this. Our good works, again, especially in our culture, which is more and more individual, selfish, self-centered, good works towards other people are always going to get people's attention. So don't give up on good works. But always be ready to speak about why you're doing it. Because God has done the greatest work for us. This is our most powerful witness. It's a, it's a tool to draw people's attention to the gospel. But we can see the facts and, and conjure two radically different interpretations. And so they've got Zeus and Hermes, and they're like, wow, they're right here. They're right here. And I want to I I give you a, a, an illustration of this. And I don't want to be morbid or, or unnecessarily negatively fo uh, focused, but in the abortion debate, which 30 years ago, I mean, Joe Biden is a fantastic um, Example of this because he's been around politics longer than many of us have been alive. And so you can see how the culture has shifted on our interpretation of what abortion should and shouldn't be. 30 years ago, it was safe, legal, and rare. And, and, and they took the scientific approach, which was, well, it's only tissue. It, you know, there's no heartbeat. It's not a human. It's just, it's just cells. So the abortion lobby at one point took the scientific view. We are the scientific ones. And you religious people, you're superstitious. You think that there's some magical little spirit in there. So you're the superstitious ones. Well, as science progressed and as the uh, ultrasound became 
much more clear. Now we have 3D ultrasounds. Now we have doctors performing heart surgery, open heart surgery on babies out of the womb, then putting them back in the womb, and then they're delivered 20 weeks later. Science has come so far to demonstrate to us that a child is a child is a child, no matter what stage of their development. What what does the abortion lobby do now? Oh boy, science not on our side anymore. Science is showing the whole world that all these babies we've been aborting are real. They are children. They are life. So what do they do? They begin to make scientific, or they begin to make religious assertions. Now they are making metaphysical religious assertions about when life begins. Oh, my friends, that's not, that's not a scientific observation. And so these presidential candidates are saying, well, I think life begins when baby takes its first breath. Says who? Says you? I mean, we're not the author of life. And so you can see how the the so-called scientific facts are not going to lead people to the truth. They need to be convicted that God has already revealed himself to them. And Paul's going to make that point a little bit later on. But my friends, the truth is always on the side of God. The further science goes, the further philosophy goes toward the truth, the more God is vindicated every single day. And, And his word is proven out over and over and over again. So that's why Christians are not afraid of science. They're not afraid of philosophy because God has ultimate reign over all things. That's why we're also not afraid of politics because it belongs to God. And we assert his reign and his lordship over every sphere. And so these are the people. They've missed the point. They're beginning this religious ceremony to worship these two men. And then we come to the truth. Starting at verse 12, Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, um, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. So they wanted to worship the men. And when uh, the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out saying, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature as you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And so out comes the truth. Out comes the truth. So Paul had been preaching and he performs this miracle and they miss the point and they begin down their old paths of religion. They go down the thing that they've always known. They go back down that old path of false religion. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, we are here and we cannot let this continue on. We need to tell you the truth about your religion. We need to tell you the truth about who we are. We need to assert who Christ is and we need to confront this. And we need to overcome your misunderstanding. We need to overcome your unbelief. And Paul touches on two major things that set Christianity apart from every other false religion. Number one, the apostles say, we are men of like nature as you. Now, this was somewhat radical because in in that culture, the gods were very distant and disinterested in the affairs of men. And in fact, the gods could be capricious. They could play tricks on people. They, they could abuse people. They could just do whatever they wanted. They had power for the sake of power. You know, they'd spin the earth like a, like a ball in their finger, and it was just like their playground. And so to think that a god would work through a human being, which would just be absurd to them. It would be absurd. And so if a person was performing a miraculous sign, it would have to be the gods themselves. 
Gods would never use or interact with or, or model a human being after their will. It was just too crazy because the gods were high and disinterested in humanity. But the, Christ, the Christian witness says differently. The Christian witness says God fills his people. He makes them in his own image. He fills them and then he causes them to do his will. That is, folks, that is revolutionary. It's even revolutionary in our times. Not only that we could know God, but that he's inside us and that he's working through us. He's accomplishing his will through me and you. To the degree to which you are obedient to him. He says, we are, we are men just created just like you. Even these pagans who are sacrificing bulls to Zeus and Hermes, they are made in the image of God as well. They're not beyond the reach or the, the authority of God. And he says, we're just like you. So every man, woman, and child is created equally under God. Men and women don't rise up to become like God. In fact, that was the sin of the Garden of Eden. Satan said, you will be like God if you have knowledge. No, we'll never be like God. We'll always be his creation. But it doesn't mean we are insignificant or valueless to him. In fact, he fills us with his spirit. And so that's radical that God would use man. Think of the Garden of Eden, the original creation. God put man and woman into a garden together to work as a team to subdue the earth, to name the animals, to, to plant plants, to harvest fruit, to plant fields. God first made man to do God's work in the garden. My friends, I think that's the same vision we have today. We are still living in God's garden with his spirit in us. That's why faithful cultivation is our commitment. We're cultivating all the time, whether we like it or not. We're either letting the ground grow dry and cracked and useless, or we are tilling and watering and planting all the time. And so it's radical that God would use humanity who is otherwise broken and sinful. God would restore them to their purpose, which is to do God's will. Here's one other way that Christianity sets itself apart from at least the modern version of many religions today. That all sincere belief and faith is somehow equal. Christianity sets itself apart. Paul says in here, he distinguishes Christianity from every other form of religion by saying, you should turn from these vain things to a living God. In other words, Paul says there's an alternative to false belief. It's true belief. He doesn't categorize their faith as somehow some form of Christianity. I mean, Christianity had sacrifice, bull sacrifice, didn't it? Christianity had God coming down in the likeness of man. He could have said, well, these folks are basically already practicing Christianity, but just they're using different words. They're just using Zeus and Hermes where we would say Jesus and the Holy Spirit. No. It's false religion. If it's not Christ, it's not him. And so we need to, again, disabuse ourselves of this notion that there are unknowing Christians all over there worshiping God without knowing it. It's impossible. God is a personal God. You cannot be married to your wife without knowing it. At least I hope not. But God is personal. If, if, if you know him, you can worship him. If you do not know him, you cannot worship what you do not know. And so he says to them, you need to turn from these vain things, these vain religious practices. This word vain just means without profit. In other words, it won't gain you anything. It's profitless. It's empty. 
It's empty ceremony that at the end of your life will render no reward to you. So turn from them now to these, from these false gods to a living God, to a God who is active, to a God who is interested, to a God who is there. Two major ways that Christianity is set apart from false religion. The Christian faith asserts that religion at large is only useful insofar as it accords with reality, right? I mean, don't we live in a culture that in our false humility says, well, people do whatever works for them. You know, you know, I mean, if that's what makes them happy, some people feng shui their apartments, some people meditate, some people do whatever this or that. But whatever works, right? Whatever works for them. Well, the, the Bible says and the apostle says that it's vain. It is without profit if it does not lead them to the living God. If it does not accord with reality, it is useless. It's like my, you know, my children saying, well, you know, I'm going to go serve myself some ice cream and they go over to the toy bin and they, you know, they plop some Play-Doh onto a cone. They can believe that's ice cream all that they want, but as soon as they bite into it, reality does not agree with their religious beliefs. And so as Christians, we have the ability to help people's religious beliefs accord with reality so that when they bite, they actually get ice cream. When they devote themselves to the living God, that he is really there. And the beauty of that is that he, he shows them this God is not foreign to you. He says, and this is, this is a very challenging verse in verse 16, in past generations. So before we do that, he introduces them to the God of creation. God made these bulls. God made the sea. God made the animals. There is a living God that you can know. And then he says in verse 16, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. That's the Old Testament. We see the Amalekites, the Canaanites. We see them in their pagan worship and child sacrifice and all these horrible things. And God allowed them to do that. You know, often we want to blame God for people's sin. Well, why didn't, why didn't God stop them? Why didn't God intervene there? But the reality is, friends, if God allows us to do anything, we go our own way. The picture of that, the, the reality of that is that man will never follow God on his own. He, it literally says he let them. He allowed them to walk in their own ways. How many of those nations turned up just laws and righteous behavior? Zero. The only one that turned up a righteous law that endures today in our courts is the Jewish faith. Why? Because God intervened. He no longer allowed them to walk in their own way and he said, you will follow me. But as for these other nations, he allowed them to go their own way. And that's the forefathers of these people. These are the forefathers of false belief, those who never had God's law. But it says that he never left them without a witness. For he did, and Blair prayed, reminding us this morning, he did good by giving rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Isn't God so kind to give us that which makes us glad? Thanksgiving is literally a great time to say, I just love turkey. I just love it. And it's from God. Your turkey is no less an indication of God's mercy in your life than anything else. The fact that you were fed this morning, the fact that you have clothes that fit you, the fact that you are in some ways comfortable, the health that you have may be not perfect or, or otherwise. It's God's grace. He gives the rains and the fruitful seasons to satisfy the heart. And he says, even your forefathers knew that. 
God was always there. And so we're going to conclude with, I think, three exhortations. Number one, we should know our Bibles because we live in an age where we are constantly being bombarded with bold assertions of false belief. Right? Constantly. We are being bombarded with assertion that there are other ways to know God, that there are other ways to practice religion legitimately. And Paul invites these people just to abandon. He says, just turn. Abandon. And he goes to the reality of who God is in the scriptures. I think Christians are often so tongue-tied because we don't know our Bible any more than our opponents do. And I don't mean opponent as in us versus them. I just mean those who often attack Christianity use little bits of Scripture. They use little bits of the truth out of its context, out of its proper application. And they say, well, what about this? And we are caught on our back foot because we don't know the Scriptures. We don't know the God that we worship. And we're not able to answer. We're not able to help people turn from their false belief to the living God. And so, friends, know your Bible. Absorb and, in, and, and take in God's truth. Feed on it. Let it be your diet. Let it be your sustenance daily. Not only so that you can answer those who would refute, but that you, so you can raise your kids. So that you can vote in a way that honors God. So that, I mean, everything. Your Bible is your guide. It is the lamp unto our feet. Friends, if you are living a vain life today, I invite you to abandon your vain worship. Abandon that which is profitless. It will turn up empty at the end of your life. Turn to the living God. And the only reason Paul can just say, turn to the living God, is because Christ has already gone to the cross to wash people from their sin who turn. Turn to the living God would not have been a good invitation before Christ. Because where was justice? And so because the cross is behind Paul, he can say, just turn to the living God and receive the truth, receive the Holy Spirit, and be a child of God. And so I would invite you, if your life is not in devotion to this living God, I invite you to turn from your vain ways and come to him because he will receive you. Don't we think, isn't it unkind? Isn't it unkind to unseat people's confidence in their own religion? I mean, don't we think like, I don't want to step on people's toes. I don't want them to be upset. It's kind of mean to like say you're wrong. Recently, uh, archaeologists uncovered a, uh, a child burial site in northern Peru. Child burial site. This was a, uh, a group of tribal Peruvians uh, some generations ago who were, who were sacrificing children to appease El Nino. El Nino is that weather pattern which brings uh, terrible rainfall and winds um, to, to areas like that. And they were literally sacrificing their children to try to preserve their lives because the weather seemed so threatened. Does that sound at all like our time? My friends, there is a dramatic link between sacrificing children and trying to preserve ourselves for the future. And the weather always seems to be the worst enemy. The stakes are so much higher than you think. Do you know how many skeletons they found at this burial site? 227. They found footprints in the sand preserved, preserved archaeologically that showed that these children were marched about a mile from their village out to this sacrificial site where they were sacrificed so that these people could see the weather change because they didn't know the truth that the living God is the one in charge of the weather. My friends, the stakes are high. It is unkind to leave people in the dark. 
We also need to know our listener. We need to listen to them. We need to hear what they are saying, and we need to show them the relevance of God in their lives. And very often, my friends, this is in common grace. People always, they want to blame God for every bad thing in the world, and they give him no credit for the good. How is it that you can go into the grocery store today and spend $50 and have a feast that King Louis would have spent a fortune for 200 years ago? My friends, the bounty that God has delivered, his common grace to those who hate him is unparalleled. We need to show people how kind God is, how truly loving he is, how interested he is in their lives. He has not left himself without a witness. He has not abandoned the earth. We need to show people that, that he is still actively at work. My friends, lastly, we need to know our God. We need to know our God, that he is imminent, that he is here, that he is on the earth in his people, and that he has an interest in the future of the earth. He is at work to transform the unbelieving nations unto himself. He is directing and affecting the affairs on the earth, giving rain, drawing attention to himself, and through special revelation, through his church, through the preaching of his word, he is drawing sons of rebellion back to himself and reconciling themselves to him. This is the God that we serve, not a disinterested God who would manipulate the earth and play tricks on his people. This is a kind and just God and he is worth following and he knows all and he can be trusted with all. And so I pray that fills your thanksgiving bounty in your spirit this morning, that God is so trustworthy and he is so genuinely at work in the world And he has chosen vessels like us. We are no different than the people out there, right? We're created in the same image. We're not more special, but we know the truth and we share it with those as a a blind beggar showing another blind beggar where to find food. Let me pray and we're going to sing a final song.